So we are making our way through Lent, the holiest season of the entire year. And during the sacred season, we're looking at some of the ordinary, everyday things that matter as part of the Lenten story. Things that Jesus invites us to see as, as holy. And by paying attention to these things, we'll do all that we can to try and to discover, discover the sacred even in the small things that we see and do in our everyday lives. We'll seek to open our hearts to all that is all around us. And as we do, we will begin to discover moments of sacred grace in the midst of the ordinary, everyday moments of life and nearly everything that we do. This week, we'll be looking at the story of Jesus as he gathers with his disciples in the upper room and they share together in the Passover meal. Now, you may remember that last year, last week, we looked at a very similar story. That one, though, was in a different gospel. Today we're looking at John's gospel, and and you'll notice that John's account of the same stories is fairly different. John doesn't talk so much about communion. Instead, he puts an emphasis on, on another act that took place that night. Today's reading is found in the gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Here begins the reading. Now before the festival of the Passover... Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know now what I am doing but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no shame share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head? Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. After he washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set out you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor messengers greater than the ones who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. 
Thanks be to God. So in recent history, there has been a lot of discussion about the decline of the church. Not necessarily this congregation, but, but the big C church, the church overall, and how it's losing its appeal in particular to some of the younger folks that oftentimes come to Christianity. Many people who study and evaluate this sort of thing, they often point to this decline, at least in part suggesting that maybe it has to do with the church's fixation on sex, on who should have sex with whom and how and when. And young people are simply turned off by this. Wonder why this is even such an issue. They are leaving the church in droves and just sort of shaking their head as they walk out the door. Meanwhile, denominations are imploding. Churches are dividing. People are yelling. In many ways, this has become the issue in the church today, sort of the litmus test for one's faith. Let me give you an example of this. World Vision is an interdenominational missional organization. They support children and families all over the world. They gather together sponsorships, and for $35 a month, you can support a child, provide food and water and clothing, education even. You can, you can maintain a relationship with that child, send and receive letters, and stay in contact with them. I remember a few years ago, World Vision announced that it was making a change to their personnel policy, tweaked its hiring policy to allow for the employment of anyone who is legally married, including those who are married to a member of the same sex. They held on to their rule of abstinence that, that anyone outside of marriage was to remain abstinent. And they didn't issue any grand theological statement. It was, as a nonprofit organization, they made simply a human resources decision. But however, as you can imagine, this was interpreted by many conservative Christians as a statement against biblical authority. And the backlash, the backlash was swift and it was fierce. The internet exploded, and evangelical conservative Christians, they went nuts. Thousands of people called World Vision and canceled their sponsorships. And they did so with, with such venom and anger that two of the people that worked in their call center, the ones that were receiving these phone calls, they simply left in the middle of their shift. Here's the thing. Forgotten in all of this were the children, the hungry, the thirsty, the ill, the alone, the disenfranchised, the orphaned, the forgotten children, children that depend on that support, children that might not survive, let alone thrive without that support. And yet they had become a pawn in a theological debate. Now, church, something tells me Something tells me that these children, they don't care so much about same-sex marriage. It doesn't matter to them where we stand on that theological spectrum. They just want to eat. They just want to go to school. Do you see what I mean about that fixation in the church today? Who and when and how people can love one another and, and, and why the church is 
why people are so turned off by that. Why the church ultimately is in decline. But I wonder, I wonder if in some ways it's bigger than that. That in many ways this is just sort of a symptom of a larger issue that, that ultimately it's not about who people can love, but it's part of a wider, deeper issue that our modern American society seems deeply, deeply afraid of intimacy. Despite the success and the need for 12-step programs and, and grief groups and hospice and therapists of all kinds, most of us, most of us hesitate to open ourselves up to truly be authentic and vulnerable with one another. I see this in the church all the time, that, that people are reluctant to let their true selves be shown, to be vulnerable. And that's why, that's why, in part, we have listed as one of our core values here at University Christian Church, vulnerability. Because we understand, we recognize the need to be open, to be honest about where we are on the spiritual journey. I heard the story one time about a woman in recovery. She had sort of lost everything and forced to move in with her daughter. And one night after a 12-step meeting, they were sitting around having a cup of coffee at the kitchen table. And this mother just sort of puts her head in her hands and says, I just don't understand. Why can I be more honest at an AA meeting than I can be at church? The daughter simply looked at her and says, Mom, I'm not sure. I guess, I guess the people in AA realize that it is a matter of life and death. And in the church, they just haven't figured that out yet. It is a matter of life and death. And we in the church, we haven't figured that out yet. And for a lot of people, the church is a place that is so closed off, a place where vulnerably, where honesty have been so closed off that, that it completely precludes intimacy of any level. And frankly, this reading that you just heard a moment ago is probably one of the most intimate stories in all of Scripture. More so than the Song of Songs, more so than Ruth and Boaz. Here we have Jesus wrapped in a towel, and his hands are on the feet of the disciples. He's cleaning them. He's drying them. He's touching them. Peter can literally feel the breath of God on his shins. Here's the thing. Scholars, scholars say that that sort of thing never would have happened. Hosts wouldn't wash the feet of a guest. They would at most provide water so that they could wash their own feet. Maybe, maybe a slave or a servant would wash the feet of a guest, but, but not a host. This was extraordinary. The action was so simple, but yet its significance was revolutionary. Using the most ordinary means, Jesus conveys the most extraordinary love and commands his disciples to go and to do the same thing in his name. The act of washing the disciples' feet has been called the sacrament that almost made it. Except for Catholics on Monday, Thursday, not many Christians, especially the mainline liberal folks like us, the Protestant branch of the tree, we never wash feet. 
Maybe it's just too real, too earthy, too, too intimate. My first church out of seminary was in Dallas. And one year I was asked to, to plan the Monday Thursday service. And so I gathered together the worship committee and I suggest, I suggested that maybe, maybe we do a foot washing element in the midst of this Monday Thursday service. You would have thought that I suggested that we take off all our clothes and dance naked around the sanctuary. The reaction was so negative, so profound, absolutely not. No way, they said. I don't think I could do that, one woman said. One woman said, I'd, I'd need to get a pedicure first. My toes need to be pretty. So we decided instead to wash each other's hands. It was a, a compromise, a way to, to sort of water down, to sanitize that act. It was less intimate less vulnerable. Now, church, I get it. I get it. I'm, I'm a runner. I have ugly feet, black toenails, calluses. My wife who read scripture a moment ago, my wife and my kids, they will tell you that they make fun of me all the time for just how bad my feet are. I'm not sure I want Jesus, let alone any of you, rubbing my feet because I'm afraid of the reaction that may be on your face of just how ugly my feet are. But I wonder if it's more than that. Alice McKenzie is a professor at Perkins School of Theology at SMU across town. She says, a deeper reason that we don't want Jesus handling our feet is because to allow Jesus to touch our feet is to allow him to touch our will. To allow Jesus to wash our feet is to remove all that prevents us from using our feet to follow him. To scrub away our insecurities, to wash away our weariness, to buff off our bitterness. To allow him to wash our feet is to be all in. And I think that by and large there is a reluctance amongst Christian folks to be that fully committed. You may remember that the passage opened by, by Jesus saying, having, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The word there in Greek is telos. It means, it means a couple of ways to look at it. One, it could be a sense of conclusion, sort of I've reached the end. Or it could be the end in terms of a goal, a, a qualitative type word. In other words, Jesus loved them fully, completely, without hesitation, without reluctance, not halfway. There was no wavering. There was no ambiguity. He loved them to the end. In my last congregation, there was a man by the name of Bill. And when he was younger, he played football for the University of Pacific And he told me the story one time about how following his sophomore year in college, the school brought in a new football coach. And when the coach gathered together the players that had been signed by another coach, he gathered them all together and he he drew a great big circle on the blackboard. And he simply said, he simply said, no, no, no judgment if you can't fully commit. But you're either in or you're not. 
No judgment. If you're not, we will find you another place to play. But I need people that are all in. How many of us? How many of us, when it comes to faith, are not all in? We're sort of standing with one foot on the line, maybe dipping a toe just outside the circle. And there is this hesitancy, there is this reluctance, this need, this fear. And so we hold back. We, you can have this part of me, God, but not, not all of me. We're tentative, we're hesitant, we're reluctant. Ivan the Great was the czar of Russia during the 15th century. He was a, a brilliant military strategist. In many ways, he, he united Russia. But he was, however, so consumed by his military campaigns that, that he had not taken time to, to marry, and as a result of that, was not able to produce an heir to succeed his throne. And so he sent out advisors to find him a suitable wife. And they would come back, and they said that they had struck an arrangement. They had an agreement with that he would marry the daughter of the king of Greece. Well, the king of Greece was delighted and the marriage was agreed upon, upon one condition. And that was that Ivan must become a Christian. Ivan indicated that he was willing to do that. And so he sent and a priest came to Moscow and, 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 and taught him what it meant to be Christian. And once the instruction was done and he was ready to be baptized, he went with his palace guard, about 500 of his, of his most skilled soldiers, and they all went to Athens. And upon his arrival in Athens, Ivan was to be baptized into the Christian faith. And all of his soldiers, the palace guard, 500 of them, always loyal to their leader, decided, decided that they would become Christians too and asked if they could be baptized. And so after a crash course on the Orthodox faith, they too were ready for baptism. Now, Ivan and his guard would be baptized in a mass baptism to be attended by, 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 by crowds from all over Greece. And as was custom in the Greek, Greek Orthodox Church at that time, baptism would be in the same way that we do it as the disciples, by full immersion, so I want you to imagine this scene. 500 soldiers, 500 priests wading out into the Mediterranean for baptism. The soldiers decked out in their full battle gear, the priests in their black robes and their hats. Now, there was one more problem that presented itself. The Orthodox Church at the time did not allow for professional soldiers to be members and so if this group, these soldiers, were to be baptized into the church, they would need to give up, essentially, their occupation. This was unacceptable to Ivan and his soldiers, and so a compromise was reached. And as the priest baptized every soldier, every soldier would reach down, grab his sword, and lift it high above his head. And then he would be baptized, fully immersed, except for his arm and for his sword. Jesus says, Jesus said at the end, just as I have washed your feet, so you should wash others' feet. 
What's he asking us in this moment to do? Later in the chapter, he said, he would say, just as I have loved you, so also should you love one another. Is he actually, literally asking us to wash each other's feet? Or is he simply asking us to display an attitude of service? To treat each other in such a way so that, so that love is more important even than life itself. To treat one another with love even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult. Especially when you, when you can't see the outcome, when it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, when it doesn't entirely make sense. Is he asking us to be fully present, engaged, open, honest, vulnerable, to be all in, every day sacred, seeking the holy in the ordinary, but yet how often do we miss out on those sacred encounters because because of our reluctance to fully engage, our lack of willingness to to be open, to make ourselves vulnerable. How often do we try to be someone we're not just so that they may like us or think a little more highly of us? So church, what might happen? What might happen if we fully put ourselves out there, saw every encounter as holy, each encounter as an opportunity to be intimate? You see, in an intimate relationship, everything is revealed. Our grief, our confusion, our humility, our deepest joys, our most profound regrets, our frustrations, our deepest needs, our most ardent longings. You see, it takes courage to be that vulnerable. And so may we, as people of faith, find the courage to take off our shoes, to reveal our dirty feet, and to step in, all in. Amen.